And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studio there here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today September the 5th, 248th day of the year. 117 days remain till the year is over with. Holidays and national days that you all ask for. International Day of Charity. National Cheese Pizza Day. Telephone Tuesday. More phone calls happen on this particular day than any other. Another Look Unlimited Day. National Act Dumb Day. They named one after Congress. All right. National Be Late for Something Day. National Cellulite Day. National Child Protection Week. National Shrink Day. St. Teresa Canonization Day in Albania. <coughs> and World Samosa Day. Alrighty. Nine seventeen A.D. Liu Yan declares himself emperor, establishing the Southern Han State in southern China, at the capital of Penyu. Thirteen sixty seven, Shao Kei became king of Ava. For those that are not familiar with the great country of Ava, that was the dominant kingdom that ruled. Uh, Myanmar from 1364 to 1555 successor state to the petty kingdom of Mianseng, Pinyin, Saisang that had ruled central Burma since the collapse of the pagan empire in the late 13th century so you get a history lesson 1590 Alexander Fernese's army forces Henry IV of France to lift the siege of Paris 1622 Hurricane overruns a Spanish fleet bound from Havana to Cadiz and sinks the Guyana Tocha. Only five men are rescued. 260 passengers and 200 million pesos are buried with the Atocha under 50 feet of water. I got a coin that came from the Atocha. 1661, fall of Nicolas Fouquet. Louis XIV, superintendent of finances, is arrested in Nantes by... D'Artagnan, captain of the King's Musketeers. 1666, Great Fire of London ends. 10,000 buildings, including Old St. Paul's Cathedral, are destroyed. But, surprisingly enough, only six people are known to have died. 1697, War of the Grand Alliance. French warship commanded by Captain Pierre Lemoyne uh, d'Eberville defeated a English squadron at the Battle of Hudson's Bay. 1698, in an effort to westernize his nobility, Tsar Peter I of Russia imposes a tax on beards for all men except the clergy and the peasantry. 1725, wedding of Louis XV and Maria Lesinowska. 1774, First Continental Congress assembles in Philadelphia. 1781, Battle of Chesapeake and the American Revolutionary War. British Navy is repelled by the French Navy, contributing to the British surrender at Worktown. 1791, Olympe de Gougas uh, writes the Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Female Citizen. 1793, French Revolution, French National Convention initiates the Reign of Terror. For those that are not from, really familiar with what it is, it was a period of the French Revolution when following the creation of the First Republic, a series of massacres and numerous public executions took place in response to revolutionary fervor and a clerical sentiment and accusations of treason by the Committee of Public Safety. If you didn't like somebody, just accuse them of treason. Pretty much what's happening today. <clears throat> 1798, conscription is made mandatory in France by the Jourdain War Law. 1812, Siege of Fort Wayne begins with Chief uh, One of Muck's forces attack two soldiers returning from the fort's outhouses. 1816, Louis XVIII has to dissolve the Chambray and Trevabal, the unobtainable chamber. 
1836, Sam Houston was elected the first president of the Republic of Texas. 1839, UK declares war on the Qing Dynasty of China. 1862, American Civil War. Army in Northern Virginia crosses the Potomac River at White's Ford in the Maryland Campaign. 1877, Lee had won at Gettysburg. History would have been so totally different. 1877, American Indian Wars. Ogala Sioux Chief Crazy Horse is bayoneted by Union uh, by a United States soldier after resisting confinement in the guardhouse at uh, Fort Robinson in Nebraska. 1882. First U.S. Labor Day Parade is held in New York City. 1887. Fire to Theater Royale in Exeter kills 186, making it the U.K.'s deadliest ever building fire. 1905, Russian-Japanese War in New Hampshire, U.S. Uh, the Treaty of uh, Portsmouth, mediated by President Theodore Roosevelt, ends the war. 1914, World War I, First Battle of the Marne begins. Northeast of Paris, the French attack defeat German forces who are advancing on the capital. 1915, the pacifist Zimmerwald Conference begins. 1932, the French Emperor Volta is broken apart between Ivory Coast, French Sudan, and Niger. 1937, Spanish Civil War. Andes falls to the Nationalists following a one-day siege. 1938, Chile. A group of youths affiliated with the fascist National Socialist Movement of Chile are executed after surrendering during a failed coup. <clears throat> 1941. The whole territory of Estonia is occupied by Nazi Germany. 1942, World War II, Japanese High Command orders withdrawal at Milne Bay, the first major Japanese defeat in land warfare during the Pacific War. 1943, World War II, 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment lands and occupies uh, Le Nadzab Airport near Lao in the Salamanca Lao campaign. 1944, Belgium, Netherlands, and Luxembourg constitute Benelux. 1945, Cold War, Igor Guzenko, a Soviet Union embassy clerk, defects to Canada, exposing Soviet espionage in North America, signaling the beginning of the Cold War. Also in 1945, Ivo Toguri de Aquino, a Japanese-American suspected of being a wartime radio propagandist, Tokyo Rose, is arrested in Yokohama. The uh, she was a uh, Japanese American disc jockey and radio personality who participated in the English language and radio broadcast transmitted by Radio Tokyo to Allied troops in the South Pacific during World War II. It was called the Zero Hour Radio Show. Called herself Orphan Anne, but became inaccurately identified with the name Tokyo Rose, coined by Allied soldiers which predated her broadcast. After the surrender of Japan, she was detained for a year by U.S. military before being released for lack of evidence. Um, Department of Justice officials agreed the broadcast were innocuous, but when Toguri tried to return to the U.S., a Piper uproar ensued, prompting the FBI to renew its investigation of her uh, wartime activities. She was subsequently charged by the U.S. Attorney's Office of accounts of treason. 1949 trial resulted in the conviction of one count for which she spent more than six years out of a 10-year sentence in prison. The uh, problem is, really didn't have much evidence. We have a current example of that today. 1948 in France, Robert Schumann becomes president of the council while being foreign minister. Such, as such, he's the negotiator of the main f treaties of the underworld war II. 1954, KLM Flight 633 crashes into the River Shannon in Shannon County, Clare, Ireland, kills 28. 1957, the Cuban Revolution, Fulgencio Batista bombs the revolt in uh, Cienfuegos. 1960, poet Leopold Sedar Senghor is the first elected president of Senegal. Also in 1960, Muhammad Ali, who was known as Cassius Clay at the time, wins the gold medal in the light heavyweight boxing competition at the Olympic Games in Rome. 
1969, Lehigh Massacre. U.S. Army Lieutenant William Calley, charged with six specifications of premeditated murder for the death of 109 Vietnamese civilians in Lehigh. I knew him. Not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but relatively nice. Married the daughter of a wealthy man in uh, Columbus, Georgia. 1970, Vietnam War. Operation Jefferson Glenn began as the U.S. 101st Airborne and South Vietnamese 1st Infantry Division initiated a new operation in Tour Thien Hue Province. Also in 1970, Joaquin Rin becomes the only driver to posthumously win the Formula One World Driver Championship in 1970 after being killed in practice for the Italian Grand Prix. 1972, Munich Massacre, Palestinian terrorist group called Black September attacks and takes hostage 11 Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympic Games. Two die in the attack, nine are murdered the next day. 1975, Sacramento, California, Lynette Squeaky Fromm attempts to assassinate President Gerald and anything I couldn't fall over Ford. 1977, Voyager program, NASA launches the Voyager 1 spacecraft. 1978, Camp David Accords, Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat began peace discussions at Camp David, Maryland on this date. 1980, the Gothard Road Tunnel opens in Switzerland as the world's longest highway tunnel at 10.14 miles, stretching from Goshenin to Areolo. 1981, first women arrive at what became the Grantham Common Women's Peace Camp in the U.K., 1984, STS-41D, the Space Shuttle Discovery, lands after its maiden voyage. Also in 84, Western Australia becomes the last Australian state to abolish capital punishment. 1986, Pan Am Flight 73 from Mumbai, India, will, with 358 people on board, is hijacked at uh, Karachi International Airport. 1990, Sri Lankan Civil War. Sri Lankan Army soldiers slaughter 158 civilians. 1991, the current International Treaty Defending Indigenous People, Indigenous and Tribal Peoples Convention of 1989 comes into force. 1996, Hurricane Fran makes landfall near Cape Fear, North Carolina as a Category 3 storm with 115 miles per hour sustained winds. Causes over $3 billion in 1996 dollars and killed 27 people. 2005, Mandala Airlines Flight uh, 91 crashes after takeoff from Polonia International Airport in Medan, Indonesia, kills 149. <clears throat> 2005, a Kavachi Airlines Anatov AN-26 crashes near Matari Airport near Ciro, Democratic Republic of Congo, kills all 11 people on board. 2012, Accidental explosion at a Turkish Army ammunition store in Elon, Western Turkey, kills 25 soldiers and wounds four others. 2021, the president of Ghana, Alpha Conde, is captured by armed forces during a coup d'etat. 2022, Liz Truss is declared winner of the UK Conservative Party leadership election, beating Rishi Sunak. 2022, at least 93 are killed and 25 are missing after magnitude uh, 6.8 earthquake strikes in Sichuan, China. Well, we have been talking about a number of um, things. Uh, where's it at? Where's it at? There it is, right there. You know, another unnecessary death. Was that a Dorothy Stratton? Well, it was an insufferably hot August day in San Fernando Valley, a suburb of Los Angeles. And something didn't smell quite right in the downstairs bedroom of one of the tract houses in a certain middle-class neighborhood. And when the room's locked doors broken open after 11 p.m., the aftermath of a nightmare unfolded, two nude human bodies lay inside woman face down across a low waterbed, most of her head blown away, and a man on the floor with a gaping hole in his head, one eye dangled from its socket. Twelve-gauge shotgun was under him, blood and ants were everywhere. And just a few days before this, 
that now lifeless and body strewn across the bed had been celebrating the honor being Playboy's Playmate of the Year. Her name was Dorothy Stratton, and she was gorgeous. The man whose brains were on the floor was her husband, Paul Snyder. So everybody began to wonder just what the hell happened here. Now, Dorothy was born February 28, 1960, in Vancouver, British Columbia. Grew up in a rough, lower-middle-class environment. When she was three, her father left her mother for another woman. When she was eight, Nellie married a violent man who broke her younger brother's arm in a rage. Nellie was the mother. Nellie left the man, finding herself on her own with three kids to raise and not many options. So Dorothy performed the role of surrogate parent to... Uh, her brother and sister, while Nellie worked most days and part of the night in menial jobs, especially close to her little sister Louise, whom she'd cared for since infancy. Now, Dorothy wasn't a particularly beautiful child, but she grew into an average-looking teen with what you might say were average dreams. Well, one facet of her appearance would command attention, though. When small-time hustler Paul Snyder walked into the Dairy Queen where she was working, he spotted it in an instant. Dorothy had an amazing body, and even under her Dairy Queen uniform, her youthful chest swelled atop her long, slim torso. There were the breast of a curvaceous young lady paired with a leaf form of a bottle, and best of all, she seemed to be completely unaware of it. Visibly shy and naive, she was the perfect victim. Paul's first thought was, that girl can make me a lot of money. Well, he was a promoter, a shady entrepreneur, a pimp, and an avid reader of Playboy. And in addition to ogling the centerfolds, he occasionally even read the articles. When it offered a $25,000 reward for the discovery of an unknown of the girl-next-door type to pose at the, for the 21st anniversary edition, he immediately thought of Dorothy. Never... Waiting for opportunity to knock, he saw, knock, he saw to knock. And there it was, quietly taking burger orders and avoiding eye contact in all its doe-eyed glory, a towering blonde with a gorgeous gray eyes and a boatload of potential that only he could see. Or at least he thought so. He silently thanked fate for kindly dropping it into his lap and began putting the, uh, the moves on uh, this doe-eyed Bambi. Dorothy was so utterly, completely unprepared for this, and along with her total lack of experience and romance, she fell hard for Paul's rather hackneyed lines and laughably transparent come-ons. And Paul, of course, always kept his eye on the prize, keeping his own interests front and center, while keeping his cash cow passive and prone by feigning genuine love and protective instincts for Dorothy. After checking out the merchandise and deflowering her, he promised to pay a professional photographer to shoot nudes ever for the Playboy contest. Well, Dorothy was a decent girl with a real mother and a genuine middle-class upbringing, and she was horrified at suggestion she'd remove her clothes in front of a stranger and then have the resulting photographs sent off for more strangers to look at them. But if Paul was anything, he was persistent. Endless hours of cajoling and pleading gave way to angry tantrums and threats. And eventually, he bullied her into submission. And she's probably just too tired to argue. He forged Dorothy's mother's signature on the photograph's permission form, and the resulting spread was sent out to Playboy. And her life would never be what it had been again. Well, Hugh Hefner, editor-in-chief of Playboy, spent most of his adult life as a connoisseur of beautiful women. He had an uncanny ability to recognize a diamond in the rough, to see beyond the awkwardness of inexperience, and realize the commercial potential of a girl that could easily be overlooked by others. And when he set eyes on the, the layout of Dorothy's photos in a dark room at Playboy headquarters, oh, he knew he had struck it rich. Eighteen-year-old Dorothy was flown out to Los Angeles the next day, first time she'd ever been on a plane. Paul wasn't invited, and it was against her mother's wishes, and that Paul's urging that Dorothy threw herself into a lifestyle that epitomized decadence in the post-disco era of the late 1970s. And one of the main temples of decadence was Hugh Hefner's Mount Olympus in Hollywood, the Playboy Mansion. Dorothy, with her hickish naivete, exhibited a Marilyn Monroe-esque quality that had the, the famous and her potential rivals paying close attention. And the mansion, of course, had no shortage of beautiful girls, but Dorothy stood out not just for her looks. In fact, she wasn't exceptional in that sense at all when compared to the other playmates and models. 
Her face was ordinary, taking on a kind of over-the-top 80s-style glamour only when in professional makeup. But her figure, though, was fantastic. But the other mansion bunnies had great figures as well. Now, Dorothy stood out in ways harder to convey in words. She possessed an ethereal innocence best captured with the still camera, as Marilyn did, and an effect far less pronounced on video. And I say the camera loved her is a terrible understatement. Image of a woman-child posing in sexually explicit ways is tremendously appealing to a lot of men, and Hefner knew that. And he exploited Dorothy's appeal like the brilliant businessman he was. During an interview with A&E Biography on, about Dorothy in 2000, he spoke in tired cliches that nonetheless seemed heartfelt. Swedish person ever knew the epitome of the girl next door, lit up her room. And amazingly enough, all the corny phrases were true about Dorothy. Back in Vancouver, Paul stood, thoroughly second-guessing the decision to let Dorothy move to L.A. without him. Incessantly pestering the photographer the original photo shoot for any word about her, the photographer finally shut him up by doing a complimentary shoot of Paul, taking advantage of his boundless ego. Looked like a 70s pimp in the photos, wearing white bell-bottoms, flowery polyester shirts, buttoned down to unleash his uh, chest hair. Um, heavy gold chain and pants so tight they could have been paint. He peers into the camera with a stomach-churning come-hither look. His upper lip curled up ever so slightly beneath that uh, porn star mustache. There was a darkness in his eyes the camera captured perfectly, a blackness that sets one's teeth on edge. And three months after Dorothy moved to Los Angeles, so did he. Dorothy must have been so deflated when he showed up, insinuating herself, himself back into her new life. Spending time at the Playboy Mansion, she'd rub shoulders with movie stars and directors who'd been treated like a princess by Hugh Hefner. Was grooming her to be August Playmate of the Month, and here comes Mr. Weasel with his cheap looks and his appalling social skills and his possessiveness. Video of Paul's first visit to the mansion showed him trying to be cool, but coming off as pretentious and creepy. 1979, through Hefner's connections, Dorothy had a Hollywood agent was appearing in bit parts on television shows such as Buck Rogers and Fantasy Island. Had a small role in a motion picture called Skate Town USA. Wasn't really the big time, but she was still darling du jour of half-center circle. She was August Playmate of the Month. Paid the bills by serving cocktails at the Playboy Club in Century City. Well, Paul busied himself by pretending to be busy and getting the brush off from Dorothy's alias circle of friends. He was a lot of things, and stupid wasn't one of them. He knew Dorothy was pulling away, and he wasn't about to let the greatest thing ever to plop into his pathetic existence walk out. He guilted her into marrying him by pointing out if he hadn't walked into that Dairy Queen in Vancouver, she'd still be working there. And he might have been right. But behind the worst, most vile assertions is usually a kernel of truth. Wedding's photos show him dressed like a brown prom, a tux, in a brown prom tuxedo grinning like a Cheshire cat while she towers over him in her halter-style wedding dress, forcing a smile. None of her alias friends showed up. Soon the shy Dairy Queen began to come into her own, posing for publicity shoots and conducting interviews to promote her upcoming centerfold. During one interview, an unbelievably rude reporter asked if she would take her clothes off for him, and she's sitting on the grass in a tight red tank top that has a Playboy bunny emblem embossed in sequins on the front and hot pants. Her smile goes away, and she says no. She managed to come off both sad and absurd at the same time, though she had a Hard time explaining why she wouldn't take off her clothes. <laughs> Paul had been toiling on a project of his own, his own uh, abraian idea for an all-male ex erotic nightclub act consisting of beefcake dancers wearing skin-tight pants, white collars, cuffs, and nothing else. Obviously inspired by the uniform Dorothy wore as a cocktail waitress at the Playboy Club, the concept had nonetheless been previously unexplored. And so the Chippendale dancers were born. Now, the act was sheer genius, and it's hard to believe the notion not been tried sooner. Paul recognized women had sexual appetites just as much as men, and there were precious few outlets other than romantic entanglements that catered to those needs. And the act, as well as the club that showcased him, was an instant success, but due to low business acumen, uh, Paul found himself on the outside looking in when his investment partners cut him out uh, completely. Dorothy was all he had left. 
Well, the two lovebirds made a nest of a tracked house alongside 405 Freeway and took in renters to help make ends meet. <clears throat> play, uh, the pay at the Playboy Club wasn't that much better than Dairy Queen. Modest income didn't stop Paul from trying to live modestly. He purchased himself a used Mercedes with little money Dorothy managed to bring in. Hanging a customized license plate on it that read Star 80, a reference to the bright future he was securing for Dorothy in the coming year. Newlyweds never bask in the warm fuzziness of her honeymoon period, though, as the same old issues kept coming up. Everybody loved her and couldn't stand him. He accompanied her on publicity gigs and to parties, always the same story. She'd charm everybody with her gentle, unassuming ways, and he'd shadow her like the stalker he was, embarrassing her with her ridiculous clothes and hustler demeanor. Even picked up a cheap imitation of Hefner's satin pajamas. He was described by one individual as a walking freak show. And then one day when she managed to shake Mr. Goodbar and sneak off to the Playboy Mansion by herself, she met Paul's opposite and famed director Peter Bogdanovich, a man of wealth and fame, a gifted filmmaker who broke into the Hollywood scene a few years prior with the gritty, hauntingly beautiful movie The Last Picture Show. And he was fresh off a seven-year relationship with the star of that movie, supermodel turned actress Sybil Shepard. And seeing this wide-eyed newcomer off in the corner, he made a beeline for her, and when she had no idea who he was, even after he introduced himself, he became even more intrigued. So the two began to see each other. How their relationship could be explained to Paul in a way he would accept was a problem, so Bogdanovich cast Dorothy in the film he was currently working on, called They All Laughed. She had to be on the set every day, and was nothing Paul could do about it. It was a perfect situation. Well... Oh, Dorothy now had a real part in a real movie and was carrying on with a famous director and was about to be playmated a month. She was still living with Paul in their freeway shack. Marilyn Grabowski, former photo editor for Playboy, said in her interviews for the Biography Channel's profile on Dorothy that she'd uh, given Dorothy a puppy. Only to hear a week later, the puppy was dead. Grabowski said she just knew Paul had murdered the dog out of jealousy after Dor uh, Dorothy mentioned Paul accused of loving the dog more than him. Well, golly gee whiz. August 1979 issue, a Playboy hit the stands with Dorothy on the cover, and suddenly the world knew who she was. Best-selling issue of the year. Hefner began grooming his protege for Playmate of the Year, and the calendar turned from 79 to 80, the year Paul's license plate promised a new star, and looked like that promise might really be kept. Dorothy jetted off to New York to shoot scenes on location, for they all laughed, leaving Paul to obsess about her back in L.A., while... She and Peter carried on their affairs if he didn't exist. Well, while Dorothy was away, Paul had another idea and began feverishly working on it in the garage. It should be a workout bench with other straps could be adjusted to support all kinds of bizarre sexual positions. Hope to sell this invention at a pleasure chest, a kinky sex and bondage shop on La Brea Boulevard in West Hollywood. Store's still there if you're interested. And then mass produce it for the sex toy industry. Puzzled Chess said thanks, but no thanks. Apparently, the device was too BKT even for them. Another failed venture for Paul. When Dorothy returned to L.A., things went from bad to worse for her and Paul, and he had her tailed by a private detective who just confirmed what he already knew. She was in love with another man. Well, Hefner held a lunch in her honor where he announced she'd be Playmate of the Year, attended by Dorothy and Paul. Dorothy, in a really ugly brown shapeless dress, went up to the podium to accept her honor. Her face was radiant, her blonde hair a mass of curls. She thanked Hefner and her photographer, but not Paul. He began to get the message. While in Vancouver on a publicity tour, Dorothy began to cut ties with Paul, closed her joint bank accounts on a formal request for separation, and planned to leave him. Desperate and angry, Paul flew to Vancouver and Went to Dorothy's family's house, took her to a club, and put her on display where he collected a buck apiece for signed glossy photos. Got back to L.A., she was finished, and moved into Bogdanovich's Beverly Hills mansion. It was a wonder Paul let her go. Well, he didn't have his gun yet. Dorothy and Bogdanovich wrapped up the final scenes, and they all left to New York over the summer of 1980 and went back home in late July. Paul bought his gun and waited all night in the shrubbery of Bogdanovich's yard for the couple to come back so he could kill them both. Well, fortunately for Bogdanovich, Paul got the day wrong. That twist of fate saved Paul's life, but it only delayed the inevitable for Dorothy. 
Morning of October, August 14th, Dorothy told Peter she was off to see her attorney and go to a photo shoot at the mansion afterwards. Dorothy's little sister, Lise, was visiting, and she wanted to tag along, so the two of them got in the car and left. In truth, Dorothy had agreed to meet Paul at the house they used to share to make her break with the psycho final. Had a thousand dollars in an envelope and hoped he'd buy her freedom from her tormentor. En route, she changed her mind about bringing Louise and dropped her off at the beach instead. You have to ask yourself, would Paul have carried out his plan if Louise had been alone? Would they be dead today? Would he just have waited for another time? You know, that's questions we'll probably never know the answers to. Well, Dorothy arrived at Paul's house about noon. Exactly what transpired over the next few hours never been known. Detectives were unable to construct a likely scenario. At some point, Snyder snapped, making her a hostage. He brutalized, beat, and raped her repeatedly, put the shotgun to her cheek, and blew her face away. Also, taking a tip of her index fingers, her hand rose defensively. Nobody knows if she was alive or dead when he strapped and taped her to his sex bench prototype and proceeded to brutalize her in unspeakable ways. Bloody handprints were stamped on her buttocks. He tore out a chunk of her hair, which was still clutched in his fist when the bodies were found. Took her off the bench, tossed her on the bed, and then shot himself. He fell on the gun, and the bullet that had left his right eye dangled from the socket. Dorothy Stratton was dead at the age of 20. Well, strange events followed her death. Bogdanovich had what they used to call a good old-fashioned nervous breakdown. He still had to edit. They all laughed, and after spending months in the dark alone with his dead Dorothy's flickering on screen, he pretty much lost it. He spent the next four years writing a book about it, The Killing of the Unicorn, where he laid the blame for her death squarely on the shoulders of Hugh Hefner. Well, there was plenty of blame to go around, though. Hefner didn't appreciate it and did news conferences and interviews where he pointed out it was Dorothy's affair with Bogdanovich that pushed Snyder over the edge, not her work at Playboy. And he also called Bogdanovich out for seducing Louise Stratton, who was only 16 at the time. And, of course, all this controversy helped book sales immensely. Dorothy's mother and sister filed a multi-million dollar lawsuit against Hefner for libel, hotly denying it was anything between little sister and the big shot director turned author. Hefner insisted Bogdanovich really behind the lawsuit, and everybody went to court, and a lot of lawyers got rich. Charges were dropped, and Bogdanovich declared bankruptcy. Four years later, he and Louise were married. Well, this turn of events put most people off. It seemed that Bogdanovich was able to move on from Dorothy and just wanted to hang on to her in any sick way he could. Nobody gave the marriage more than a year, and they were wrong, and it lasted 11. Peter never regained the statue in Hollywood he had enjoyed before Dorothy's murder and was made divorced in 2001. Well, Dorothy's final resting place is at Westwood Memorial Park, just across the lawn from another tragic blonde, Marilyn Monroe. A few months before her death, she told an interviewer asked whether or not she was worried her life would end as tragically as Marilyn's due to the nature of the business. She said, I try to take life one day at a time. Her epitaph from the Ernest Hemingway novel Farewell to Arms reads, If people bring so much courage to this world, the world has to kill them to break them. So, of course, it kills them. It kills the very good and the very gentle and the very brave impartially. If you're none of these, you be sure to kill you too, but there's no special hurry. Well, unfortunately, part of the problem was she took up with a sleazeball, and he couldn't afford to be left behind. Well, Barbara Stratton, let's talk about Barbara Payton. Well, it was a prostitute cruising for free drinks in the Sunset Boulevard dive that was, that was distinguished only in her complete lack of distinction. Just another $40 whore willing to trade sex for a drink, not very selective about who she bargained with. Grossly overweight, she was in need of a bath, and her slurred speech often impossible to decipher. Into the bar, one patron leaned to another and said, See that drunk prostitute over there? She used to be a movie star. Well, she used to be more than a movie star. She was an enchanting blonde vision, making ten grand a week, playing her many drooling admirers for fools. And before she came to the neighborhood pump, staggering up and down the strip looking for tricks and passing out on public benches, she was Barbara Payton, queen of film noir. Her fall from grace was so darkly profound it was not an exaggeration to say she put tragic in tragic Hollywood. 1927, born in Minneapolis, grew up poor in Odessa, Texas. 
spending her days dreaming of stardom in a darkened movie theater. Like many striking but obscure young women in small towns, she married the first boy that asked her. Handsome airline pilot named, um, excuse me, Air Force pilot named John Payton, and they moved to Hollywood so she could try her hand at stardom. It was 1943, and World War II was raging in Europe. Where Barbara was too pretty and too rough to stay cooped up at home, her husband attended USC under the GI Bill. She began modeling and appearing in print ads for cars and fashionable clothes, and pretty soon she was a fixture in the clubs around town, and her husband began to grumble. Well, they had a son, and Barbara seemed more interested in self-promotion and being a wife and a mother. So the marriage inevitably ended, and Barbara found herself a single mother on her own in Hollywood. Well, luckily for her, Universal Studios noticed her and gave her a contract for $100 a week, which in 1943 was not bad money. Agent Phil Feldman described her as possessing that blonde goddess shine that can't be described as anything but a radiance that makes a movie star. First film was Trap, co-starring Lloyd Bridges, for which she received decent reviews. And now the ultimate party girl had the money to party in style. She is known as the queen of the nightclubs, and when she wasn't working or sleeping, she was drinking and dancing the night away. It became a habit very quickly, and Universal eventually dropped her contract. She so impressed James Cagney after her screen test for his new film, Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, immediately signed it with his own production company. And that film was a huge success. Still considered one of the best uh, noir films ever made. Barbara paid Cagney's mall and girlfriend and ends up killing after he betrays her with another woman. Hollywood Reporter said of her performance, Barbara Payton in a difficult role of a basically good girl who turns to evil in spite of herself makes a vivid appearance. Manage the subtle transition of polished artistry. And the world took notice of the blonde with legs to the moon, pouty full lips, and baby doll blue eyes. She was at the top of her game. Ten years later, she'd be working in a dry cleaner just to make ends meet. And that wouldn't even be as bad as it got. But to reform, Hollywood didn't realize the potential staring him in the face and cast Barbara in a second-rate Gary Cooper film as the third lead. That film was called Dallas, and Barbara played the villain's girlfriend. Well, that movie, though it was work, didn't look for her career, and rumors swirled of a romance between her and Cooper, who was a renowned skirt chaser. Had a brief affair with a notorious womanizer by the name of Bob Hope, who set her up in an apartment uh, as a kept woman. That deal ended when Barbara became too demanding, and Hope's attention span ran out. The new man entered Barbara's life, and he didn't take no for an answer. Many who knew Francois Tone uh, thought him one of the most handsome men in film. He was suave and excluded, exuded class and refinement, though he preferred the opposite of women. He was once married to Joan Crawford, who was called many things, but classy wasn't one of them. Often seen at the Hollywood supper clubs, and one busting nobody after another as his escort. And he became truly obsessed with the gorgeous Barbara, following her on a, her kiss of tomorrow goodbye to her and begging her to marry him. Sent her roses and champagne every day, and before you knew it, they were a fixture at the uh, all the chick Hollywood clubs. Warners, together with Cagney Productions, owned Barbara's contract, and they proceeded to kill her career by casting her in one bad western after another. She would have benefited from a better manager who believed in both her potential and her abilities. Instead, she was left a founder in second and third-rate parts and B-westerns who disappeared from theaters, theaters almost as soon as they appeared. Only variation of this theme was the movie Only the Valiant, Valiant, which both Gregory Peck and Gig Young duped it out for the glamorous Bond's affections. It was her last A-list film, by the way. She was subpoenaed to testify at the murder trial of bad boy extraordinaire Stanley Adams, as it seemed she'd been in his company the night a narcotics dealer found him shot dead. Though she wasn't implicated in any wrongdoing, the press nonetheless had a field day with the story and Warners wasn't amused. She was loaned to yet another substandard production, Drums in the Deep South, co-starring Guy Madison, with whom she instantly began another affair. Three leading men, three affairs? Well, what the heck, who's counting? Well, Tony was. He had Barbara tailed by a private eye bust in on Madison and his wayward fiancé, catching him in the act. He threatened to punch Madison out, saying, I'm engaged to this girl and I'm going to marry her, are you? To which Madison replied, no, I can't, I'm already married. Well, the press lapped it up, and more negative publicity swirled around Barbara, who was by now developing something of a justified reputation as a drunken floozy. 
Well, Tone was called out of town for a few days, and as soon as his back returned, Barbara hooked up with a hunky B-movie actor and fellow boozer named Tom Neal. Claimed it was love at first sight after she encountered him in his apple charms at a Hollywood swim party. And the feeling, of course, was mutual, and soon Neal and Barbara were messing up beds all over town. Well, Tom was a jock, a former amateur boxing champ at Northwestern and had pecs you could hang a side of beef from. And he was the bad boy to Francois Tone's good guy, and Barbara began playing a dangerous game of hot and cool love between them. Well, Neil was fond of Barbara, but Tone was impassioned and possessive. After all, they were technically engaged, and it wasn't hard to see an epic showdown on the horizon with lovely Barbara cast as the bag of gold. On the night of September 13, 1951, Tone confronted Neil outside Barbara's home in Beverly Hills. He hit Neil in the jaw, and Neil responded by knocking him off his feet, leaping on his chest, and pummeling in his face repeatedly. Shocked, Barbara tried to intervene and got a backhand black eye from Neil for her trouble. The attack was so violent, the neighbors cowered inside their homes and watched Neil pummel Tone for ten full minutes, and when it was over, blood everywhere. Francois Tone lay unconscious on the ground, and Barbara was screaming at Neil, You've killed him. Well, Tone was in a coma for eighteen hours and hospitalized for another two weeks. Had a smashed cheekbone, a broken nose, and a serious concussion, and the press went wild. The other line screamed, Tom Neal knocks out Tone in love fight. Public took sides, mostly against Neal and Barbara. Nobody cared, and Barbara thought she loved Neal, that Tone had actually thrown the first punch. It was all about that two-timing blonde slag and her low-life bully of a boyfriend ganging up on that nice fellow, Francois Tone, who was obviously too much too good for Peyton. Well, Barbara knew she'd be finished in Hollywood if she didn't make it right with her bruised and battered fiance. And when he got out of the hospital, she married him in the town where he was born, where she was born, Cloquette, Minnesota. He said this marriage was forever, and added later on, forever was just a weekend or so. That sounds about right for her. Fifty-three days, one suicide attempt by Barbara, and several ugly arguments later, forever was over. Barbara just couldn't forget Tom Neal, who soaked his sorrows and booze, lamenting the loss of his love. Years later, in a futile attempt to rescue Barbara from total destruction, I offered to marry her again. I'll be young for you again. I'll become a boy again. Well, Barbara was too far gone by that time. It didn't happen. Neil and Barbara got back together, also teaming up for another forgettable western. The great Jesse James raid, where a bloated, pathetic Barbara attempted to keep it together as a torch singer in a saloon. And blessedly, that particular film was quickly forgotten. Unable to get film work, they began touring the country in a space production of The Postman Always Rings Twice. Somewhat appropriate, don't you think? Two actors fresh off an adulterous love triangle that turned violent touring a play about adultery and violence. Now, the problem was, Barbara no longer looked the part of a sexual temptress, and Neil had never been a great actor. When it became clear that the Terrible reviews of Postman going to turn around. Peyton crossed the pond to England to make even more bad movies. Over time there, she said, I was a smash head. It paid loads of money. Countless lords begged me to be their little pussy wussy, and I gave a couple of them a thrill or two, but when Tom came to London, they all looked like shadows instead of men. Tom locked my haunches every time I looked at him, and such a strong foundation at the heart of their relationship, it wasn't surprising that Peyton and Neil split up four years after their international love affair began. Neil went on to marry twice more, but he never again deemed Barbara worthy of another proposal. He was eventually tried and convicted of shooting and killing his last wife in her sleep and spent six years in prison. Died of a heart attack in 1971, six months after he was paroled. Barbara didn't even make it that far. Back in Hollywood during the early 60s, she found herself unable to provide for her own basic needs or feeding her appetite for alcohol, so what's a girl to do? Tried legitimate jobs and get herself fired every single time by showing up drunk. And it is hard to blame her. I mean, how hard must it have been working as a hostess at a fancy restaurant and seating her former celebrity friends who would then spend the rest of the evening laughing behind her back and rubbing it in. Wrote bad checks to buy booze and getting fined and lectured by unsympathetic judges who criticized her for wasting the opportunity she had but never offering any help. Barbara enjoyed a brief respite in the late 50s when she spent some time living with a fisherman on his boat off the coast of Mexico, but the ever-less-less Barbara just, just had to return to Hollywood for one last shot at the big time. 
She'd have done better to stay on the boat. By 1962, she was working as a $300 a night prostitute, living hand to mouth on the Sunset Strip. 300 became 100, and then 40. She was arrested for vagrancy repeatedly for being passed out on a bus stop bench, wearing only a bathing suit and a sweater, and then for dancing naked in front of an open window, for being drunk and disorderly. 1963, she was rushed to the hospital and being stabbed by John's, got 38 stitches. February 67, she was found unconscious under a pile of garbage by a dumpster, barely alive, covered in bruises, and missing several teeth. She was thought to be about 60. She was actually 39. She slept there for days. Somebody offered to take her to a detox center and shook her head and said, I'd rather drink and die. Doesn't get much more self-destructive, do you think? Hospital kept her a few days and sent her to her parents' house where she died of heart and liver failure three, mo three months later. Her most memorable film was Kiss Tomorrow Goodbye, and that's exactly what she ended up doing. She was gorgeous with a commanding screen presence and that elusive quality that only a few who become stars possess. Her biggest love wasn't a man or stardom or her son. Her biggest love was booze. And that was one love affair that was never wanted. But alcohol's a greedy lover and it took away everything. It took her beauty, her money, her self-respect, and finally it took her life. Before she died, ghost author Leo Geld propped Barbara up long enough for her to dictate her autobiography to him for which she was paid a paltry thousand dollars. That book remains the only time Barbara's story was told in her old words that suited her revealing. In the prologue, she remembers the time she tried to warn younger actresses not to fall victim to the trap she had, and they just brushed her off. She said, I'm a, I know I'm an old coot now, almost 35, wine soap, pray for men's uh, $5 bills, but I can still write poetry. And she did have a gift for poetry. Well... You have to understand some folks don't want to be saved, prefer their cherished tune be silenced, their music remain unheard. And Barbara Payton was such a individual. Well, the next one you all heard of. Her name is Merlin Monroe. Excuse me. I had to sneeze. There was a woman and a boy. Clad alike in nondescript black sweaters and walked side by side down 57th Street in New York. They moved along the crowded sidewalk. The woman finally leaned over to the boy and whispered, You want to see her? And the boy looked puzzled and said, See who? And she gazed at him in mixed amusement and disbelief and said, Her? A oh, metamorphosis washed over her, a transformation with less to do with the physical and the psychological, and it came so deep from within her that it could easily have been perceived as a physical change. And if it wasn't for the fact she did it right in front of him, in seconds he might have thought it was somebody else standing there. Tilted her head back, thrust out her chest, ran her fingers through her hair, put on a beaming artificial smile, and began to walk with a kind of half-swish, half-wiggle, something most women wouldn't be able to pull off even if they spent years practicing. The crowd gathered, a murmur slowly grew in intensity. You know who that is? It's Marilyn Monroe. Strangers who hadn't given her a second glance seconds before and began to reach out to touch her and beg for her autograph. They swept the boy aside and swamped the woman. This nondescript had become Marilyn Monroe, the most famous actress in the world. It took less than five seconds. Didn't need makeup, clothes, or wigs to accomplish it. All she needed was to summon up her small alter ego. Well, this small and secure woman had become not only the most Famous actress of her time, but the most enduring actor of, actress of all time. Her visage is, even more, visage is even more recognizable today it was when she held court on the screen for 10 brief years, 60 or 70 years ago. The story of her life has been written about countless times. She's been betrayed on screen more than any other star, most recently in the acclaimed film, My Week with Marilyn. Recently, Macy's department store launched a new junior's clothing line based on her style. Macy's belief that a star who died 50 or 60 years ago can still sell clothes to modern teenage girls is somewhat remarkable. She didn't have a happy beginning and ended badly as well, but for a magical period in the middle, she was the very essence of beauty, ethereal innocence, and sex. Her real name was Norma Jean Baker. Born June 
1926, to a mentally unstable woman named Gladys Baker. And as for the name of her father, well, it's anybody's guess. Gladys was married to Martin uh, Mortensen at the time, and Monroe said her mother named Charles Stanley Gifford is the father, and he bore a slight resemblance to Clark Gable, somebody Marilyn had a mad crush on. So she clung to that story her entire life. Gladys worked full-time, wasn't really into motherhood anyway, so she left her baby daughter in the care of foster parents Ida and Albert Belinder. Norma Jean remained with the Bolinders for seven years, considered the most stable period of her in the childhood. 1933, Gladys bought a small house near Hollywood Bowl and brought Norma Jean back to live with her. Well, Gladys' stability was fleeting, though. She sank into complete insanity through the next year, eventually being placed in the same mental hospital where her own mother had died. And Norma Jean spent the rest of her life haunted by the specter of insanity. Her mother's friend, Grace, a huge movie buff and Jean Harlow fan, adopted Norma Jean briefly, instilling in her a love of movies and Harlow, first blonde bombshell. Grace got married and felt there was no place in a new life for the child, so she put Norma Jean in an orphanage overlooking the Paramount Studio water tower where she remained for two years. Well, Norma Jean couldn't understand why she was there and was dragged inside kicking and screaming. She had a mother and didn't belong there. At 16, she married Jimmy Daughtery, and only a beauty with thick, wavy hair, perfect skin, and a perfectly proportioned body. Also thoroughly scarred by her traumatic uh, childhood and wrestled for the rest of her life with insecurities and inner demons that left with her. And Daugherty couldn't believe his luck, but Norma Jean was less interested in marriage and she wasn't following the footlights of the movie premiere she lived next door to in Hollywood. And it wasn't long before Daugherty was left for the fun of World War II, leaving his new bride with his mother. Norma Jean went to work at a munitions factory with her mother-in-law. And one day, David Conover, photographer, came to the factory to photograph the women doing their part for the war effort and spotted the lovely brunette right away. David spent most of the afternoon shooting her, ignoring the rest of the women at the plant, and the camera's love affair with Norma Jean had begun. Well, David got her an audition with the Blue Book Modeling Agency, began modeling for print ads. She asked a hairdresser to add some zing to her hair for a shampoo ad that turned her hair strawberry blonde. Loved the effect and returned to the salon to have him make it even blonder, and the next series of modeling photos got significantly more attention. The blonder she got, the more the phone rang. 20th Century Fox saw her modeling photos and offered her a standard six-month contract at 75 bucks a week in 1946 with the stipulation she changed her name to Marilyn. Well, she chose her new last name as homage to her grandmother. Years later, she said she wanted to keep Jean as her first name, but Ben Lyon, head of Talent Studio, insisted on changing both. That same year, she had divorced her husband. He didn't approve of how her life was going. After nothing but bit parts, Fox dropped her option and Columbia picked it up. And that was due in large part to her relationship with Joe Schnick, a Fox Studio mogul and good friend of Columbia boss Harry Kahn. Columbia put uh, her into the first real film role in Ladies of the Chorus, where she shined. Well, on that note... We've run out of time, and we got plenty more to talk about with Marilyn, and we'll do that in the next show. Until then, Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show, saying have a truly great evening.